Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. In the field of the crime novel and suspense thriller, one name rises above all the others. Elmore John Leonard Jr., who was born in 1925 and died on August 20, 2013. Elmore Leonard began his career as a Western writer, but soon moved to more contemporary subjects, dealing with timely themes of economic disparity, governmental, and corporate misbehavior. He dealt with competent U.S. Marshals, incompetent thieves, corrupt judges, gangsters, hoods, shady businessmen, and even shallow Hollywood dealmakers. His early novels, The Westerns, showed what Leonard could do, and several were filmed, amongst them The Tall T, based on his story The Captives, 310 to Yuma, Valdez is Coming, Joe Kidd with Clint Eastwood, and the Paul Newman classic Ombre. After about two decades, he moved on to thrillers, writing novels and screenplays, including Mr. Majestic with Charles Bronson, The Moonshine War, Stick, which became a film with Burt Reynolds, and 52 Pickup. By the late 1980s, Leonard had become a legend in genre fiction, but he wasn't yet a household name. But that would soon change as many of his novels came to the screen, including Get Shorty, Touch, Cat Chaser, Glitz, Pronto, and Gold Coast. His novel Rum Punch became what is still arguably Quentin Tarantino's best film, Jackie Brown. His novel, Out of Sight, was translated to the screen by Steve Soderbergh. It became one of his best films. Later films included Kill Shot, Freaky Deaky, The Big Bounce, a well-received remake of 310 to Yuma, and the yet-to-be-released Life of Crime with Jennifer Aniston. He made several forays into television, most recently in the past couple of years with Justified, which is now considered one of the best of the current crop of cable classics. Back in 1988, on Probabilities, the predecessor to Bookwaves, my then-co-hosts Richard A. Lupoff and Lawrence Davidson had a chance to speak with Elmore Leonard about his early career in Westerns and about his early career as a thriller writer. The following year, Lupoff and I spoke again with Elmore Leonard about his then-current book Killshot and about other elements of his career and his writing. This program is taken from those two interviews, neither of which has been heard since they initially aired on KPFA-FM in Berkeley. So how did Elmore Leonard start to be a writer? What is the origins of his writing career? I started in 1951. I was fresh out of the University of Detroit. I had written a couple of stories in school, a couple of short stories that I entered in a, in a writer's contest. They didn't go anywhere. I chose Westerns in the 50s because just to, to zero in on an area so that my mind wouldn't wander around, what am I going to write about? And I decided on Westerns because I liked Western movies. 
and there was a good market for westerns. You could aim at the slick magazines, Saturday Evening Post, Collier's, come down into Argosy, Blue Book, Adventure, and then into the Tucson Award, uh, Better Pulp magazines. I was inspired to some extent by Luke Short's popularity, by the fact that he and his brother, Peter Dawson, were regularly in the Saturday Evening Post or Collier's. There was a writer, I think his name was John Cunningham, I thought was awfully good. He wasn't in the slick magazines. I wasn't inspired so much by the writing of the Western writers as much as I was by, in, in that early 50s period, Ernest Hemingway. I was reading For Whom the Bell Tolls over and over, or just opening the book at random and, and studying how he put scenes together. And I, and I felt that For Whom the Bell Tolls, in a sense, was a Western. And so I started writing, uh, my first one was rejected, well the first two were rejected, but then I, then I began to research in, in earnest, Arizona in the 80s, 1880s, Indians, cavalry, which were very popular then. And uh, the second story I wrote I sold to Argosy. Before I started to research, I, I did write a couple that I sent to the pulps and nothing happened. And, but once I became serious about it, the first story that was rejected by Argosy with a letter, uh, they asked me if, I, if they could pass it on to their, popular, to their series of pulp magazines that Popular Publication printed. And the editor there, Michael Tilden, helped me enormously. He, after the first sale, uh, he wrote me a five-page letter that was, that was encouraging from, from the first line on. I couldn't believe it. that it, uh, He had just paid $100 for a, for a story and that he would take that much time. While today Elmore Leonard is known primarily for his thrillers and crime novels, some of those early Western books have become classics. Both Ombre and Valdez's Coming became successful films as well. Ombre, in fact, was voted by the Western Writers of America as one of the 25 greatest Westerns of all time. That was my fifth book, fifth full-length novel. I wrote it in 59, and it didn't sell to Ballantyne until 1961. Everybody turned it down. Because of the market, for, to some extent, they just weren't paying the advances that they had before, because at that time there were about more than 30 westerns on primetime television during the week. The fact that the, uh, the protagonist is killed in the end might have had something to do with rejections. Valdez is coming as, it's my favorite western that I wrote as far as book is concerned, it's my favorite. I remember the day that I was looking through old short stories to see what I could make a book out of. And I had written a story for the Western Writers of America Anthology about 1961, I think, or early 60s. And I read the short story again and I thought, it's a book. All I have to do is change the, the man's age. And that short story had been somewhat based on, it was kind of a prequel to a short story that I'd sold to Argosy called Saint with a Six Gun. That was their title. My, my title was The Hanging of Bobby Valdez. Out of that, I wrote this short story for the WWA anthology. Then when I was looking for material for a book, I thought I can use this first, this short story almost as a first chapter, change a few things around, change, make him older, and I've got a book. Because Leonard could spin a yarn, a number of his early stories and novels became films. 
The first was the tall T. The first one, the tall T, I remember as the best rendition of my work. The ending of the picture was slightly changed from the novelette that appeared in Argosy in 1955, I think it was, but it was a better idea. It wasn't changed that much, but there was a slight difference. Richard Boone was in it. I could hear Richard Boone when I was writing it. Uh, let's see, Skip Holmeyer and Henry Silva. I like the picture a lot. It's funny, Henry Silva, he was coming to Detroit to audition for uh, Rosary Murders a couple of years ago. I had written the script. And he said, a friend of mine called me uh, the other day and said, have you read uh, La Brava? And he said, no, I haven't read it. And he says, well, you should because you're in it. And Henry Silva is a character in one of the old movies that are referred to and, uh, and well, shown in the book in, in La Brava. The first feature I wrote was uh, uh, The Moonshine War. Well, The Moonshine War, I wrote Valdez's Coming before The Moonshine War, but it wasn't produced until about three years after because the producer was waiting for Burt Lancaster's availability. Omri, I, I liked most of it a lot. There were some of the lines that gave me some trouble that I thought were kind of anachronisms. Uh, Why are we following you? Diane Solano says to Newman, and he says, because I can cut it. Now, you know, it's close to being a Western expression, to cut sign, but I don't think that the screenwriters knew that. Let's see, how did Joe Kidd come about? I don't know, I don't remember. When I wrote Mr. Majestic after Joe Kidd, now that, I know exactly how that came about, because Clint Eastwood called up and said, do you have something like Dirty Harry, only different? And Joe Kidd hadn't been released yet. And I wrote The Moonshine War because someone called uh, Swanee, my agent, and said, have him write something, something like uh, Valdez is coming for me, only different. And I wrote The Moonshine War, which was quite a bit different. Joe Kidd was just, it, and it, my title was The Sonola Courthouse Raid. And the publicist said... Uh, Universal thought it sounded too much like Shinola, not knowing Shinola from something else, I suppose, and decided that Joe Kidd was the way to go, and John Sturgis was the, was the director. Then when I did Mr. Majestic, Eastwood called up and said, I would like something like that that I can, that I can own, and rather than you know, getting a few points from the studio, he hadn't really come out yet all the way. And uh, so I thought of Mr. Majestic, just the bare idea of it, and called him up the next day and said, what about this? And he said, sounds great, work it up. Wrote a 24, 25-page outline, sent it to him. And I was in uh, Los Angeles a couple of, a few weeks later, talked to him about it, and it, seemed, it looked like he was going to do it. But then, by, by then, he had uh, bought High Plains Drifter, and he had something to do, and then my agent got into it and I think gave him a week to make up his mind, you're going to do it or not. And uh, he said, not. And uh, then uh, United Artists, I, no, no, Universal, must have been, uh, picked it up for Bronson. After two decades as a Western writer, Elmore Leonard left the field and began writing crime fiction and suspense novels. I'm essentially a commercial writer. I look at markets and 
No, I shouldn't say that I don't do that anymore. I look at markets, but I mean, I write what I want, but still I hope that it's very saleable. I'm not going to ever be too experimental, because I know my limitations. I know what I can do and what I can't do. At the end of the 50s, the market dried up. The advances were so meager, and it was at a time that I had just left uh, an ad agency where I'd been working, we'd been writing ads for 10 years, and um, I was on my own. And all of a sudden, the market isn't there for the kind of stuff I was writing. So that for the next four and a half, five years, I busied myself doing industrial movies. I did a, a, oh, about a dozen movies for Encyclopedia Britannica films, history movies, seventh, eighth grade level. I did all kinds of advertising materials uh, just to make a living. And then Ombre sold to Fox. A friend of mine had a contract with Encyclopedia Britannica to do oh, a couple of dozen movies. And he said I could write whatever ones I wanted. He was paying me $1,000 a script. His budget was 10000 a picture. So that I was sure of, say, 12000 a year or something like that. And I remember the first year that I freelanced, I made $19,000, which was more than I had made working for the agency. At that time, when I left the agency, I was making about 16,000 bucks as a copywriter. And, and those movie sales, The Tall T and 310 to Yuma, got $4,000 for one and 5000 for another. So I, I didn't make that much on the movies. Ombre sold for only 10000 bucks, but it was enough. It gave me about six months of free time. So then I wrote The Big Bounce, got 84 rejections. I read the manuscript again and saw that it, it needed a plot more than anything else. Despite the, the letters from, uh, from publishers to Swanson telling him they thought it was a downer, that they weren't interested in the characters, they weren't the kind of people they would ever want to meet, there wasn't anything the least bit encouraging about the response from editors. But I felt no, this is the way I want to write. A plot will help it. An interesting story will help it, but these are the people and these are the kind of people I want to write about. Jack Ryan was the main character who later on was in Unknown Man number 89. A guy with a questionable background. He was a burglar. He was a migrant worker. But he's basically a good guy. And basically a very kind of a simple guy. He wanted to be a baseball player. He wanted to get in the arm, and he couldn't do either. You're listening to a tribute to novelist and screenwriter Elmore Leonard, who passed away in 2013, based on interviews conducted in 1988 and 1989. I'm Richard Walensky on Bookwaves. What made Elmore Leonard successful? What was his secret? Was it the intricate plots of his novels? The answer is no. And what follows here is a crash course in how Elmore Leonard created his books. To me, the plot isn't important. The plot is going to come along. The situation, I'll start with a situation. A producer says to me, you want to do a book that we can make into a movie? Some ex-cons get together, one last big caper, and then they'll retire. It can be anything. It can be jewels. It can be anything. And I said, yeah, it's only been done a hundred times, but I haven't done it, and they're the kind of people I like. And I started thinking about it, and it became bandits. 
some ex-cons, but uh, what's the what are they stealing? Money earmarked that's being raised for the Contras. Now that makes it a little bit different, and yet it makes it very current because it was going on, so that it wasn't just another big caper novel, you see. There's probably more situation in that than in, in other books of mine, where I just have a vague idea of what the, the situation is, a, a story. I have no idea how it's going to end. I start to assemble characters. The characters begin as types. I think about them, I listen to them talk. They become personalities, gradually. Once I get the name right, that's about half of it. Because in Bandits, the male lead was Frank Matisse originally. Frank Matisse was acting too old for the guy I wanted. Frank Matisse didn't talk enough. He was about eight or nine years too old. I changed his name to Jack Matisse. He was a little younger and he opened up a little bit. I changed his name again and, I, and he's already in the book. I was about 50 pages into the book. I changed his name to Jack Delaney and I had him. He was the guy. Then <laughs> I have to go back and rewrite some of, the, some, of his, uh, some of his passages where he didn't barely opened his mouth. I revise all the time. I revise constantly as I write. I write in longhand. I have uh, Postal Instant Press make me up uh, buff-colored pads, 50, 50 sheets to a pad. And I think I, I use about, it takes about five pages for me to get one. I go and write in longhand, I just cross out all the time. I'll write a few pages in longhand, put it on the typewriter, revise that. Whatever I've written the day before, I revise, then I, re, I read and edit the next morning, and, and again, I'll end up rewriting. By the time I get to the end of the book, it has been rewritten, it has been revised, so that I don't finish a draft and then go through it and do it. I think of the first 20 years or so as hard work, learning how to write, learning what I can do and what I can't do, and that, that was so important. Finding my own voice, realizing what my attitude about writing is, What's the most effective way to, for me to put those words on paper? And what I think about these people in this situation is out of the attitude comes, comes your style. You can copy someone else's style in the beginning, which I did, I copied Hemingway, but gradually from that I develop my own style. But once I realized that I certainly didn't share his attitude about life, I didn't take myself as seriously as he did or take anything else as seriously as he did, which was unfortunate. I think it's the reason he killed himself. I have to not think of it as writing, almost. I have to not try not to write, make it look like writing. I've said that if it looks like writing, I rewrite it. Because I want the reader to be so involved with these people in kind of a voyeuristic way that they're watching something that's going on. They don't, they're not aware of me. And they're only going to be aware of, of me is if I use words that are, might be perfect in its application, but will be jolting because they're out of character. They're not words the characters would use, mm -hmm. you see? So that in the narrative, the narrative always carries the sound of, a, of one of the characters. All the scenes are told from somebody's point of view. I'll write a scene... I'll decide what the purpose of the scene is, 
whose scene it is, who would be looking at it most effectively and write it that way. Then I'll sometimes, which I've done, I'll rewrite the scene from another character's point of view, and it works better. Then a book gets to the editing stage, and the editor gets to work, right? For Elmore Leonard, that wasn't necessarily the case. There isn't much editing required with my work. It's been edited by the time they get it. You know, I've gone over it. And uh, they know what I'm doing or what I'm trying to do. I've had problems with, with copy editors who want to change my punctuation or correct my grammar, just as a reader will, a fan will write and say, I would like to point out how your, some of your grammatical errors, you know, and I tell them that when I split an infinitive, I want it to stay split. There's a reason for that. Or anything that's ungrammatical, there's a reason. And I'm not going to let good grammar get in the way of the sound of the story. I remember one time at Dell in uh, The Hunted, where I had a long running sentence full of participles, and maybe it, it went 60, 70 words. And the copy editor cut it into about four different four separate sentences and blew the rhythm. You know, I met Raymond Carver the other day at the ABA, and uh, told him how much I admired his work, and how how much I love the way he used the verb said in his own special way, not for identification, but as beats, as pauses, as to. to add to the rhythm of a line. I know how long a sentence can be. I know when it's working and when it isn't just by the sound of it. And I, I know also with dialogue. People say that I have said that I write in short sentences, but I don't. It's just that maybe there's, it sounds, they sound short. They're in rhythm, I hope, and, that, and perhaps they sound short because of that. Elmore Leonard's novel, Touch, was published in 1987 but the book was written 10 years earlier. What happened? Elmore Leonard sets up the premise of the book. Here's a guy who has the stigmata. He doesn't know why. He bleeds from his hands, his side, and his feet, replicating the wounds of, of Christ. He was a Franciscan brother. He bleeds, and when he bleeds, if he touches someone who's ill or infirm, he can heal them. There have been 321, or whatever it is, stigmatists or stigmatics in the world going back to St. Francis of Assisi. Then I wonder, what would happen to someone with the stigmata today who has this power or gift, who's thrown in with promoters like Bill Hill, who meets a girl who promotes punk rock records like Sandy, who meets a guy who has a, a TV show who antagonizes an interview show who antagonizes his guests, trying to get them to run screaming from the stage. And then the arch-conservative Catholic. Well, so I just throw all these characters together and uh, let's see what happened. I wrote the book in 77, right after the switch. Sold it to Bantam. Bantam said they were going to bring it out within a few months in the usual time. It was set in galleys. They sent me a sketch of the cover in which a character was levitating. But he wasn't levitating in relationship to anything, so he looked like a toe dancer. And I said, I don't think that works. And they said, well, if we don't do it now, you'll have to wait a year. I said, I'd rather wait a year. 
Well, they were not anxious to bring the book out. He didn't bring it out the next year, nor the next, nor the next. And every any time I asked anyone there about it, they said, "Well, listen, it, this is a tough book to market. No one knew who I was anyway, so it's not going to sell on my name. And they don't know how to label it. They didn't know how to label what I was doing, which was fairly, at least it's in the crime field. But they didn't know how to label that. Those Chandler Hammett labels were not accurate. I had to outlive those. I was the uh, you know, a dead writer's second coming for it. I wanted to be me. I wanted somebody to sell me. And they said, well, you're hard to sell. We don't know what the hell you're doing. So what are we going to do with this book? We don't even know what it is. They, I don't think they particularly liked it until 1985. My agent said they just wanted to keep you, and that's why they bought it. Then the Gold Coast was the next book, which they bought right on top of it. Then when, in 1985, when Glitz came out, and, I, and that got on the Times list, well then, they loved it. They loved Touch and wanted to bring it out right away. Hardcore. But in the meantime, I said, no, it can't be the next, my next book. My next book has to be in line in the vein of what I'm doing. And they said, we'll wait whenever you want to bring it out. In the meantime, then, I looked up the contract and it said all I had to do was return the advance since they didn't publish within two years, and it was mine. So I got it back and sold it for ten times what they had paid for it. How many it sold, I don't know. It didn't hit the list. Last I heard, at least right after it was published, there were about 90,000 in print. It's funny, though, that any criticism the book had didn't have anything to do with the mystical or religious part of it, the bleeding, the, the, the wounds of Christ. The criticism had to do with the love scenes, how soppy and sentimental and soft and, and treacly the love scenes were, and then, which then got me thinking, well, what do these guys do, these particular reviewers? What do they say in their love scenes? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe there are some uh, some very romantic things that you can say that wouldn't get a laugh from these guys. I don't know what they are. Going into more depth, Elmore Leonard discusses how he starts a book and how he came up with the idea for his first bestseller, Glitz. Well, I might start with the place. I'll start with the place and just a general, vague idea of what it's about what's going to happen and then I begin with the people and start auditioning people for the book and naming them and this is a process that takes a couple of months at least to get the names right to find out who's going to be important and who isn't then as they appear in in, in their first scenes I find out if they're going to make it or not in, in Glitz, for example, there's a character, Tommy Donovan, who runs a, a hotel casino in Atlantic City. I thought Tommy Donovan was going to be quite important to the story. He has working for him a manager of the casino, a fellow by the name of Jackie Garbo, who had come from Las Vegas after about 20 years in the business. And the first scene that these two are together Jackie Garbo upstages him. Jackie Garbo is much more interesting than Tommy Donovan, who what he does is drink more than anything else. He was kind of stuffy, trying to be one of the boys, but really didn't make it. 
Jackie Garbo was fun. I didn't know what he was going to do next. I would then look forward to his scenes. So he t took on the part of when my main character, a cop out of his jurisdiction, a Miami Beach detective who had been shot, recuperated, comes to Atlantic City to find out what happened to a girl that was murdered. His confrontations are with Jackie Garbo and not Tommy Donovan. Tommy Donovan's, Donovan's wife was going to be the female lead. The first time you meet her with the male lead, what's his name, Vincent Mora, their eyes lock and you think something's going to happen here. It's got to. But then along comes another girl, Linda Moon, who has a lounge act at the hotel. I like Linda better, see? So Linda takes over that role of female lead. And then there's Bandits, Elmore Leonard's thriller set during the height of Iran-Contra. The idea was to do a big heist type of story on, in, on the order of the asphalt jungle, where you prepare for a couple of acts, and then in the third act you pull it off, and I didn't know if they were going to make it or not, but the idea was to get a bunch of old pros together and for one last job. The idea was proposed by a film producer who wanted to do that kind of a picture. And I've wanted to do that kind of a book for a while. But then, as I was looking around for something for these guys to steal, I began reading about the funds being raised for the Contra cause. $10 million by rich Texans. And I also wanted to set a book in New Orleans, where I was born. So I thought wealthy oil men in southwest Louisiana, some Contra commandante is raising funds, these guys read about it, and they decide to go after it. It doesn't take on the format of the, of the traditional heist novel, because there's really nothing to study. There's nothing, you don't, you're not timing uh, employees coming in and out of a jewelry store or a vault or, a, or an armored car when it arrives. So as it turned out, it wasn't that kind of a book at all. And, and it was topical it, only because that was going on. But it wasn't political in the sense that this is why I wrote the book, to espouse anything about anti-contra. Lucy, former sister Lucy, is obviously thoroughly anti-contra. And I am too. But the other guys, the ones she uh, recruits to do the job, they don't know one side from the other. It was mostly in Europe when I was interviewed about my political leanings and why did you write this political novel. I'm not writing the book to make a statement. The novel Freaky Deaky was published in 1988, and again, the setup and the characters came first. I've reactivated the activists, uh, turned them around. Now they miss the action. They miss the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which were they were primarily motiv motivated by. This man and woman, Skip and Robin. Uh, they're brought back on scene now to make some money using their experience, what they had learned back there in, demonst in, in demonstrating against the United States government in, in planting dynamite bombs. Now let's make some money at it. That's the idea because other name leaders of that time we would see him in the paper now, one's a management consultant, another's a stockbroker, and so on. Eldridge Cleaver has found Jesus and, 
and uh, the, the American way. way. Yeah, <laughs> and and I thought maybe there are some people who resent this. Maybe some people who can be motivated by this to get back at them, especially if one of them is quite wealthy. So then we have the character uh, Woody Ricks, who not only has maybe a hundred million dollars, but a severe alcohol problem and looks like an easy mark. Donnell was going to be a thug. He was going to have a background of all kinds of capital. He was going to spend a lot of time in prison and he was going to be the menace in this story until I dealt with him in his, his opening scene with the main character Chris Mankowski and I liked Donnell. I like Donnell the way he stood up because characters do take over and do things on their own. I like the guy. Chris liked the guy. Well, if Chris is going to like the guy and respect him, then I am too, you see? And, and I got to like him more and more as, more as he appeared in subsequent scenes. And he's fun. Sure, he's a he's crook, his, but his ambition is to work his way into Mr. Woody's will. Mr. Woody is definitely hopeless, and, and I'm surprised at the response I get in regard to Mr. Woody, because I thought he was just kind of there. He was almost like he's the box of money. He's not much of a personality, but his brother was even less so. He, he had things to say and, and played an important part in the plot, his brother, but I got rid of him early because I didn't like him, so I blew him up. In 1989, Elmore Leonard published Killshot, a thriller involving innocent people who were put in the witness protection program. The idea for the book came when the fellow that does research for me was going down to Nashville to see George Jones. He loves George Jones. And I said, while you're down there, go over to Cape Girardeau and find out what it looks like. Because I've been fascinated by this dot on the map on the Mississippi, Cape Girardeau. What's a cape doing there? I've been thinking about setting a story, a part of a story on the Mississippi anyway for quite a while. So he went over and came back with pictures. Once I saw the flood wall, this 20-foot concrete wall that runs the length of the town, I started thinking about the witness security program. What if a witness is relocated there and this is his choice, you know, you testify or go to jail. So he testifies and he ends up here and he stands on Water Street and looks up at this concrete wall and wonders how he really made out on this deal. So that was the first idea and it didn't turn out that way. I have to construct a situation in which innocent victims, they become innocent victims who represent only 3% of the people who who are brought into the Federal Witness Security Program, 97% of them being criminals who were asked to testify against other criminals in the area of organized crime. And that was the purpose of the program. But because it do, they do open it up to innocent victims, civilian victims, I thought this was, was the way to go. In 1985, after toiling in the trenches, Elmore Leonard's career took off with the novel Glitz, and he even wound up on the cover of Time magazine. It wasn't glitz. It could have been stick. It could have been La Brava. Uh, Donald Fine at Arbor House was selling me. He was getting my stuff into the hands of influential reviewers who liked the work and were talking about it, writing about it. So then it was happening. Then when 
feature writers in newspapers and, and magazines found out that I'd been doing this for 30 years or more, 35 years, they loved the idea of o overnight success after 35 years. That was the hook. Exactly, exactly. That was the hook to write a story. So then everyone, all the interviewers asked me, well, what's it like now to have success after all these years? Or do you resent success coming at your age? I love that one. And I said, I was always successful, or at least I never thought I was unsuccessful. I had sold everything I wrote. I had sold practically everything that I had written to the movies. And out of 26 books, 24 of them have sold or have been optioned in Hollywood. My time had come. You've been listening to a tribute to the late novelist and screenwriter Elmore Leonard, based on interviews conducted in 1988 and 1989 by Richard Walensky, Richard A. Lupoff, and Lawrence Davidson. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>